If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You know how it starts. It starts with little stuff they can get away with. Then, then the big reveal of the, the one big thing that they can't come back from. It's that last magic trick that knowing that it can end your life. So my dad calls me and he goes, hey, I just I really need to talk to you. And uh, okay, I, called, I said, Dad, okay, now you sound flustered. What's up, man? You good? He didn't lead up to it. He didn't pussyfoot around. He didn't kind of soften me up for it. And I'm like, what the hell? I, I had no words. People have their own selfish reason why I did. And the only question I have for him is this, why? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter once again. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Alexis is yet again wearing her First Degree merch, always representing. You know, I've been told that this is how the law of attraction works. If you put energy towards things that are important to you, then it becomes more important and more significant in your life. So maybe that's what I'm trying. I love that. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I'm into that. Okay. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to remind everybody to join our Patreon. If you're looking for more bonus content, and if you've listened to every single episode of The First Degree, we get these posts on the Facebook all the time where they're like, I finally finished every episode and I want more. That's where Patreon comes in. We have one bonus episode every single month, a full true crime story. And every single week. Or every single week for a month. For a month. We have four full-length true crime episodes a month. So when we say bonus content, that's really diminishing the value of these episodes. They are well-researched. They're, you know, sometimes longer than our traditional first-degree episodes. And we take an investigative approach, too, where we really talk through more theories and possibilities. And all of those cases that we're doing now have been Patreon submissions, like people who have sent in the cases that they want to know more about. So we're really excited about kind of the life that Patreon's taken on. Yeah. So please join us over there. And then the other little housekeeping that we have is please send us our stories. If you are connected to a case that you would like us to cover, you can email us hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. And we had mentioned this on Patreon last week, I think, but we want to dive into some of the true con. Like you know, the psychological craziness of cons and scams and all that kind of stuff. So if you are connected to something like that, please email us too. You never know. 100%. I just started Scamanda. And so good. I am thinking to myself, I wish this was our podcast. I wish we were talking about Scamanda. So if you know any Scamandas of your own, yes, let us know. Let us help. Let's shine a light on that. I know. Those kind of stories are so fascinating. So... I think, well, no, let me tell you the date today. You want to know the date today? Sure. 
Um, there's not that many good things on today's date, but it is National Hot Dog Day and National Raspberry Cheesecake Day. If you are looking for a meal to be celebrated today. I like a turkey dog. So good. Yeah. Mm. And a mm. Costco hot dog. All right. Well, I think that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Sometimes, even when you see someone going down the wrong path in real time, there's no way to stop it. Even when you see the writing on the wall, it's a runaway train where there's nothing you can do. And our upbringings and our personal situations, in conjunction with broader social issues over which we have no control, like systemic oppression, directly influences whether someone can get sucked into a life of crime, especially violent crime. This is a true crime podcast, so we all already know that People make terrible decisions all the time based on certain circumstances. But when people from disadvantaged backgrounds do these things, is there a way we can take these external forces into account in explaining what's happened to try to find some understanding as we process these horrible crimes? We begin today's case on May 3rd of 2023. So this is just in the last couple months. So late night TV shows across the country went dark on new episodes as the Writers Guild went on strike, which is still happening, affecting shows including The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. And in the world of pop music, Kill Bill by SZA was topping the charts. At the box office, the Super Mario Brothers movie was the top grossing film, followed by the fifth installment of the Evil Dead horror franchise, Evil Dead Rise. And the setting for today's case is Portland, Oregon. Situated in the northwest of the state, the port city of 652,000 people is located 45 miles north of the state capital of Salem, at the confluence of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers. In addition to being Oregon's largest city, Portland is also the second most populous in the Pacific Northwest after Seattle. The city is known for being home to a quirky and eclectic mix of creative, bohemian types, craftspeople, artists, musicians, and those working hard to keep Portland as a place focused on sustainable living. The great outdoors is also one of the city's large draws, as I'm sure you can imagine, with the picturesque surroundings of Mount Hood and the Columbia River Gorge nearby. Despite the beauty of Portland, certain areas within the city are also in the grip of a homelessness crisis with associated high rates of drug use. Our first degree for today's case is named Lone Wolf. And before you ask, that is his real and really freaking cool name. Lone Wolf has a big family and had a special bond with one of his nephews, Marcavius or Quay, as his loved ones called him. Quay was born in June of 2003 to his parents, Marcus, and that's Lone Wolf's brother, and mom, Felicia. They were teens when they had him. It was weird how he was born. They got pregnant. It was an accident. She accidentally had a miscarriage. Then they did it on purpose. My brother was kind of living, just not caring about things. My dad was trying to get him on the right path, and he didn't want to, he didn't care about trying to do the right thing. He just wanted to do what he wanted to do. Still, Lone Wolf and Quay developed a close relationship. Lone Wolf really loved his nephew like he was his own son. When he was a little baby, he was one of the sweetest kids that you can ever be around. He loved me. I loved him. I still do love him. Him growing up was just a normal kid, right playing, 
sports. He liked football. He actually was obsessed with professional wrestling. He had so many different favorite wrestlers that, you know, his dad had him on wrestling. Like, we had all our kids on wrestling. Just That's how we grew up. You know, growing up, I would keep them on weekends. He would always ask me, when are you come get me? And I was like, oh, I'll come get you. So sometimes I'll go get him to come hang out with my, me and my daughter and go do some fun stuff. So we were super close. As Quay grew up, he did what a lot of kids do. I certainly did. He started testing his boundaries. Around 2015, when Quay was around 11 or 12 years old, Lone Wolf had a light intervention-type conversation with his nephew. He didn't want him going down the path that so many teens do, getting caught up with undesirable influences, especially gang involvement, which was a looming threat in Quay's neighborhood. We're going back to 2015. He was at my house one day, and I talked to him. I said, Quay, I mean, you just stop doing what you're doing, man. I want to see you do something in life. You know, see you like football. Get into that. Just stay away from these people that don't want no right for you. I was caring, loving. I hugged and kissed him. I said, bro, you're better than this. I don't want to see you get in no trouble. He needed a person to guide him in the right direction. And I think that's what he was missing in the long run. But Quay wasn't exactly receptive to his uncle's attempt to steer him onto the straight and narrow. The next following year, 2016, I had wrestling on at my house. And so I went and got him and his brother and ordered some pizzas. So when I go over there, he was doing something. And then one thing I don't allow is disrespect with a child and their parents. I don't care who you are. If I see you on the street disrespecting your parent, I'm going to get on you because, you know, our parents is our sanctuary. We should treat them with kindness and respect always, no matter what. So Quay was getting a little mouthy with his mom, and I got on his kiss. Like, Quay, man, what's up? I said, man, I asked you to stop doing that. Stop disrespecting your mom. She asked the question. Ask the question. Ask you, please. He asked the question. So come on, man. We're going. So we went over there to watch wrestling. And literally... Using the words going in one end out the other. Literally looking at him like, man, you can say what you want to say. I'm just going to do what I want to do because nobody runs me. Lone Wolf's concerns about Quay getting drawn into gang activity weren't an overreaction. The stark reality of life for their family was that gang influences and related violence played a very real and significant role in shaping Quay's life as a vulnerable and impressionable child which arises out of the many interweaving social, economic, and political forces contributing to the formation of such gangs in the first place. Quay still had a loose family support network, but his ties to them were weakening as he struggled to find a sense of self and continued to rebel. As he got older, the lure for peer pressure and the need for a sense of belonging amongst his friend group was really powerful. So you have to understand where we come from. We come from where... We're not privileged, so we have to get it how we got to get it. It's two ways. It's the streets or you find something that makes you happy. Well, to him, it was the streets because in his neighborhood, there's gang activity. And that gang activity is, to them, positive. Because here I got home, made homies, and it's like that. So you're showing your, your friends. And as much as our parents say this stuff is negative, it, 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 to them, their mindset is this is, this is where I want to be at. Fast forward to him being a teenager, he was like going through things. He was in and out of places. The consequences of gang violence hit so close to home for Lone Wolf that he himself has lost family members to these situations. So he's seen the impact on a very personal level. My 19 year old cousin got murdered while he was sleeping 
got shot 13 times in his bed. He had just had a son, and that was gang-related. We still don't know who did that. And they walked in the dude's auntie's house where everybody's home and did that and left. We still don't know who did it. Many of the teens in Quay's neighborhood who are seeking a sense of connection, protection, and self-esteem with their peers had extremely limited opportunities to really break that cycle. So for Quay, it wasn't a surprise that he found himself entangled in a lifestyle of violence. And once you're enmeshed with these people, it's very, very hard to untangle yourself, and it's often dangerous to try to leave. And we know from research that associating with gang members and delinquent peer groups is a key risk factor for young people who go on to commit violent crimes. According to the CDC, other risk factors like living in an impoverished neighborhood or an unstable home life and experiencing racism can all have such a detrimental effect on young people that it can fundamentally change the way their brain develops in those crucial formative years. Of course, it's no singular risk factor, like the ones we mentioned directly, that cause juveniles to offend, but it's more so a combination of individual, family, and societal risk factors, which increase someone's likelihood of offending. And that's just a fancy way of saying, right, it's a combination of nature and nurture and your environment. Right. So Lone Wolf has witnessed firsthand how gang dynamics have evolved over the years. To a certain extent, it was gang violence back then, but at least it was controlled. Hits was made on cats that was sanctioned by leaders. But kids now are just going to shoot people. There's no respect. There's no leadership. They're all doing their own thing, and they're just taking people out without having a reason. Back in the hood days, you had a reason. Hey, big homie, I need, I need to take this cat out. Okay, so what's the issue? Okay, well, you sanctioned to do that. These streets are dangerous. Even where I'm living at Salem, Oregon right now, we be having shootings happen right now. These kids are on another level. Now, it ain't no sanctions. They ain't going to the big homie no more. They just don't take care of their business themselves. And that's what happened to my little cousin. The bottom line is that neither Quay nor anyone in his family had it easy. Gangs aside, factors such as systemic racism, oppression, socioeconomic disadvantage, and limited access to education, affordable housing, job opportunities, childcare, healthcare, it's all intertwined in their lives in such a profound way that it unfortunately continues to be part of their daily lived experience. So Quay's poor behavior had already started as a preteen when he began bullying people in his own family, and he focused specifically on one of his cousins in particular. And despite Lone Wolf's best efforts, he could only see it getting worse. They was bullying him the whole entire time, treating him like shit. And they bullied him for about a year to change before he had got caught up in some trouble. We know how it starts. It's just little stuff they can get away with. They've been the big reveal of the, the one big thing that they can't come back from. It's that last magic trick that knowing that it can end your life. Quay started to turn into something that we wasn't going to get him back. Two days after Christmas of 2018, 15-year-old Quay's behavior escalated. He and a group of eight friends boarded a train in Portland, blaring music out of a portable speaker. A man, who was also on the train, was traveling with his wife and 10-year-old daughter, and he asked the group to just turn the music down. But that's not what they did. I'm talking to my dad on the phone one day, and my dad says, I was about to tell you what happened. I said, what are you talking about? So this time, Quay is hanging out with some friends. The guy was on the, we have a, a train called the Max here. It's a little faster and quicker. So they was on the train with his wife and his daughter. And they get on the Max. And on the Max, you got to put headphones on. You don't listen to music. I really don't like you taking phone calls on there because people don't want to be disturbed. People just want to 
get their ride over with and just be in peace. So he gets on the bus with his friends. They have a Bluetooth speaker. The friend, not Quay, but Quay is a follower. So he's talking to the guy, and the guy was like, hey, can you guys uh, turn that turn that down, please? So one of the friends takes the Bluetooth speakers and shoves it in the guy's face. Well, then the guy so disrespecting, he snatched the speaker away, like he, he, snapped, he slapped the speaker out of his face. And so Quay and his friends beat the guy up. The group attacked the man, beating him badly, repeatedly punching him in the head and the body before jumping off the train at the next stop. The man's injuries were so bad that his jaw was broken in two places and he lost four teeth. 911 was called and when police arrived, they used CCTV footage from the station to identify Quay and the other friends who were involved in this. But Quay had no remorse at all for the situation. He was charged with second, third, and fourth degree assault, as well as interfering with public transportation, and he was held on a $262,000 bail. And under Oregon law, the serious and violent nature of the offenses meant that even though Quay was only 15, under what's called Measure 11, he was facing being tried as an adult. With four young men hitting on you and you're that old, you know, it can cause a lot of damage. They caused a lot of trauma for that man who was just asking if they turn the speaker down that simple and quick because he was just like, you know, on fire. He's just one of those where you say something and he just wants to show in front of his friends. He made a lot of enemies with a lot of people on this run of him doing what he was doing. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Eventually, the adult assault charges against Quay were dropped, and according to Lone Wolf, his nephew did two years in a juvenile facility for this assault. Upon his release, the now 17-year-old was sent to live with Lone Wolf's mom, which would be Quay's grandmother, and she lived in Texas. But even a change of scenery didn't work to get Quay back on track, and the teen acted up so badly with his own grandmother that he was sent back to Oregon. Quay was having some behavior issues here. And they sent them to Texas where my mom was. So he's down in Texas with my mom and my other dad. Quay went down there for three months. And for those three months, he made my mom's life a living hell. Was getting kicked out of school, was being disobedient, was saying, oh, I'm sick. And then my mom would come home, he's up doing stuff, playing video games, pinning up one brother against another brother, manipulating the brothers. He was doing a lot of stuff. My mom finally had enough. She's like, okay, Quay, I can't do this anymore. He said, Grandma, I can't stay. He said, no, you can't stay. This is just, this is too much. You just, you know, and my, and my, my pop said the same thing. He said, I, he was too much. I, I, I couldn't handle what he was giving out. We was getting older and we're not trying to deal with all that mess. And so we sent them back. By this point, Lone Wolf had stopped being supportive of his nephew due to his bad behavior. And he was just done. He was already not wanting to do what his parents say. And he just wanted to be who he wanted to be. And so when that situation happened, it was like, oh, wow. Okay. But then I told him. 
you ever get in trouble, me and you have nothing to talk about. Please do not contact me. And then I tell my kids that too. Big as well I got. I taught you how to follow the laws, so I'll follow the rules. If you don't do what you're supposed to be doing and you get caught up and get in trouble and it's your fault, we have nothing to talk about. I'm not sending you nothing to the prison. I'm not coming to visit you because I gave you the tools you need to stay completely out of trouble. You chose to make your decision to get in trouble. And that's what he did. I had nothing to say to him. According to Lone Wolf, when Quay realized his uncle's boundary was hard and fast, he decided to double down. He crafted a narrative within his family that ended up turning other family members, including Quay's own mom, against Lone Wolf. And I get this long text message that's full of disrespect. This is his mother. I don't know what he told his mother. And I didn't have time to sit there and go back and forth. I got called every name in the book. I just laughed and said, okay, but he's not telling his mom what happened. She don't call and ask me what happened. Lone Wolf could see the writing on the wall as his nephew continued to make poor choice after poor choice, despite his family's best attempts to intervene. Lone Wolf had a sense of foreboding that something bad was going to happen. So he reached out one more time to try to communicate his concerns to his nephew so Quay would finally understand. But his attempts did not sink in. So going back to Christmas of 2021, I see him. I didn't talk to Quay in a while. I wasn't upset with him anymore. I just wanted to see if we can talk about it and maybe I can be a support system, be a mentor for him. So I come in and this young man is so full of piss and vinegar, it's not even funny. He started talking shit to me. And I was like, oh, I wanted to give you a hug because I ain't seen you in a while. He started talking shit. So I'm like, wait a minute, what? Quay, we're not doing that, bro. I don't know what your issue is with me. We're not doing that. So at that time, I did not know what was going on, what he was mad at me for or what was said. So then he chilled out, wouldn't say nothing to me the rest of the day. The rift between them continued. Then, in May of 2023, Lone Wolf got the last kind of phone call he was ever expecting. I haven't talked to Quay, haven't been talking to my brother. So my dad calls me, and he goes, I just I really need to talk to you. And uh, okay, I, called, I said, Dad, okay, now you sound flustered. What's up, man? You good? He didn't lead up to it. He didn't pussyfoot around. He didn't kind of soften me up for it. He's like, man, Quay done killed his son. And I'm like, what the hell? I, I had no words. I'm still not cried. I'm still not upset. I'm in shock. This news was stunning, and he was surprised for more than just the one reason. Here's the thing. Lone Wolf never even knew that Quay, who was just 19 years old, even had a son. So how had he not known about this? I mean, he was close with his nephew for a time. And how in the world could Quay have killed his own son is the biggest question. So to answer these questions, you know, all of you know the drill. We got to go back. In the spring of 2023, Lone Wolf was blindsided by the news that his 19-year-old nephew Quay had allegedly killed his four-year-old son, a child named Jordan whom Lone Wolf didn't even know existed. Lone Wolf had a million questions, and he learned that a big part of the reason he didn't know that Quay had a son was because Quay had been denying that he was the father since Jordan was born, which was around 2018-2019. He denied that kid for four years, from what I was told. I did not know my brother had a grandson to the day I found out that he was killed. It's not clear at this stage how exactly Quay and his son's mom, Janicia, met and got together. 
nor do we know the nature of the relationship or why they broke up or when. All we know is that when Genesia was 16 years old, she gave birth to their son, whom she named Jordan, and she took full custody at that time. We also know that Quay, who was only 15, had no interest in acknowledging his role as a father or taking on any of that responsibility. And it was around the same time that Quay was in serious trouble over assaulting the man on the train. According to Oregon Live, by the spring of 2023, Quay had eventually taken a paternity test and now did acknowledge that Jordan was, in fact, his son. And when Quay decided he wanted to be more involved in Jordan's upbringing, 21-year-old Genesia allowed four-year-old Jordan to spend time with his dad on numerous weekends. She was open to that. You know, she probably knew firsthand how valuable it is for a son to have a relationship with his father. Jordan was a lively and energetic child who couldn't sit still. From his pictures, you can see that he had this really cheeky smile and was obviously dearly loved by his mom and her family. On April 7th, Genesia dropped Jordan off to spend Easter with his dad, Quay at the apartment where Quay lived with his mom and brother. So this is what I heard. This is all from different sources. Quay went to take the blood test, found out he had a child, that the boy was his. He wants to start spending time with his son. So she said, yeah, but they had to have supervisors. They had one supervised visit. That was it. So one thing he asked the girl again, hey, do you mind if I take him for a week? Can I take him for Easter? She said, yes. So it was pictures of him taking him, getting his hair cut, and doing stuff with him, and all stuff. But when it came time for Quay to take Jordan back to Genesia following the Easter visit, he refused. He was now saying that he wanted sole custody of his son. Quay kept Jordan for the next several weeks, only allowing Genesia contact with her son over video calls. Jordan was supposed to be starting preschool, but Quay wasn't even taking steps to facilitate that at all. So mom allowed him to have for two weeks. After two weeks, the mom called him. She said, I want my son back. He says, no, I'm not giving him back. I'm going to raise my son. This obviously would have been extremely distressing for Genesia because it's a confusing thing. This is a young mom. She's 21. She probably doesn't know what recourse she has, right? And it's like, how do I do this? Like, they may not have had any paperwork. She was trying to be nice by being like, yeah, you can take your son, get to know him. So I can't imagine how stressful and scary this whole thing was. But of course, she continued with these video FaceTime calls because, yeah, she wants to be involved and make sure her son's okay. And during one call on April 17th, Genesia noted that Jordan had marks on his face, and one of these marks was a bruise. So she becomes really concerned. She took a screenshot of the injury that she saw on her son's face And on April 21st, she contacted the Portland Police Bureau, and she was seeking their assistance to have Jordan removed from Quay's care and return to her. Like, he hadn't been involved in four years. This is a brand new relationship between Quay and Jordan. She's like, I need this, my son back. And, you know, shockingly, or not, depending on how much you know about law enforcement, Genesia was told that because Jordan was in the care of his father, police couldn't consider it an emergency. You know, they were going to drag their feet on this. There was not, quote unquote, much they could do. On April 26th, Genesia filed for a restraining order against Quay in an effort to have her son returned, but this was denied by a judge because apparently under Oregon law, the burden of proof was on Genesia to provide evidence of abuse that had occurred. And this abuse would have had to have occurred in the last 180 days. And in the end, authorities did end up visiting the apartment to check things out and check on Jordan. 
But apparently, these authorities didn't notice anything that was out of the ordinary. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. At 12.30 p.m. on May 3rd, 2023, Quay's younger brother dialed 911. And on the call, he told them that Quay found his four-year-old son, Jordan, unconscious and covered in blood in the bathroom after suffering what they described to be a seizure. Paramedics who arrived on the scene found that Jordan had blood in his lungs, as well as signs of significant physical trauma. The boy was rushed to the hospital, where it was clear to medical staff that he'd been the victim of extreme abuse in the recent days and weeks. Jordan had severe bruising and swelling all over his body. This bruising and swelling was predicted to have taken place somewhere between two hours and other wounds were less than 30 days old. So obviously they're saying that this is prolonged abuse. Some just happened and some is a few weeks old. In addition to evidence of being strangled, they also saw that. And we're not going to get into the details of Jordan's numerous injuries here, but One of them included a cigarette burn. So that's just where we're at with what this child experienced. Ultimately, Jordan's heart collapsed due to blood loss. I don't know what snapped in his head. So he was abusing the kid. His son stopped breathing. So I took him to the hospital and Quay was flipping out. But then I was told by another source something else happened. I was told that he strangled his son to death. Ultimately, Jordan's death was determined to be the result of blunt force trauma to the torso. The child abuse team and homicide detectives immediately began investigating Jordan's senseless death. At Quay's apartment, they found blood on a bed, on a pillow, a bedroom floor, as well as blood on the toilet and blood and vomit on the bathroom floor. The devastating news was already circulating on both sides of Jordan's family. And I just broke down in tears, started crying. So I cried for three days. I cried for the little boy because I love kids. And I hate to see kids get hurt like that. I love my nephew. That doesn't change. There was nothing I could change. There was nothing I could do. All I can do is be upset for my grandnephew, my brother's grandson, and my nephew. Because when he did what he did, two lives were lost. And they're not coming back. And the fact that he's a black dude, Regardless how you look at it, they're going to try to hammer him. There are still many unanswered questions here. And one of the most obvious is, didn't the authorities who went to check things out at the apartment when the calls were made from the child's mother notice what would have been or should have been pretty obvious signs of neglect? Beyond the injuries he suffered, Jordan was malnourished, dehydrated. That doesn't happen in one day. You know, that is a a prolonged neglect of this child's needs. And somehow these caseworkers observed nothing. Or, you know, there's always the chance that these physical indicators were not evident at this stage. But generally when these visits happen, 
you know, a CPS worker will check to make sure there's food in the house. They'll check to make sure the clothes are clean on the child, you know, like, or was this not thoroughly looked into? Like, was it a quick knock on the door? Cause these things, obviously these, these visits can be life or death for, for children who are in these circumstances. Dehydration and malnourishment takes a while to set in. And once it's set in, it has to start from somewhere. Ain't it like anywhere between four to six to seven weeks where that to actually really kick in? Like to really hold somebody from eating and hold somebody from drinking anything. And under Oregon Child Abuse Prevention Law, if DHS or police receive an allegation of child abuse, they must automatically notify the other agency in a process called cross-reporting. But it's not really clear if this did happen in Jordan's case. Janicia's complaint to the DHS was open regarding her concerns about the risk to Jordan's safety, but it's all kind of hazy as to whether police contacted DHS when law enforcement was notified on April 21st. Investigators learned that the night before Jordan had died, someone else in the apartment, who may have possibly been Quay's brother or their mother, it hasn't been publicly stated who this person was, heard Quay yelling at his son for sneaking Skittles. The same person also later saw Quay washing blood from Jordan's mouth in the bathtub. Janicia assisted police by providing them with photos and videos of Jordan before he went to stay with his father. In one video taken just two weeks before Jordan went to Quay's, the little boy was happily playing and appeared perfectly healthy. The day after Jordan's death, Quay was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, first-degree assault, and first-degree criminal mistreatment. At his arraignment the following day, he pleaded not guilty. Janicia was in attendance with 10 members from her family and clutched her son's rain jacket and rain boots as a visible reminder of the innocence that had been stolen. According to Oregon Live, when a prosecutor asked during the arraignment if anybody wanted to make a statement, a young woman sitting with Janicia responded, we're all victims. But there was drama inside and outside the court as well. So members of Quay's family were also there to support him. And obviously tensions are running high. And as Quay's younger brother left the courtroom after the arraignment had adjourned, he turned to Janicia's family and said, he ain't no child killer. Things escalated, both verbally and physically, between both sides of Jordan's family, with officers having to defuse the situation outside. And part of what made Jordan's death so heartbreaking was the fact that it seems like there was ample opportunity for it to have been prevented. Janicia and her family did all of the right things. They contacted authorities to notify their concerns around Jordan's safety. But the level of intervention, as far as we can really tell at this stage, was in no way appropriate. I just want to say really quick, like, if this were me and my kid was essentially stolen by their estranged father, I think the police would take me seriously. I think they brushed her off. I think it's a racist system. They're like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is some drama between two people. I think this is fucking bullshit. And if they had taken her seriously, you know, she was also young. So she may have not known how to properly advocate for herself. Just she's 21 years old. Yeah. But she shouldn't have to advocate for herself that hard to get her son back. This is basically a kidnapping. It is a kidnapping. They slept on it, you know, and that is the police's fault. And they have a role in this because if, if Jordan was returned to her when she first expressed that my son has not been returned to me, this guy's basically a stranger denied being the father for four years Someone should have gone and gotten that kid and returned him to his mother. 
and it didn't happen. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, if police even kind of looked into the situation at all, it's like, it doesn't matter if that's his biological father. Like you said, he was a stranger denying paternity like this. And then all of a sudden being like, now he's mine. Like that is, there's something wrong with that. And if the police even took that into account at all, it could have been prevented. So, I mean, the writing's on the wall of what kind of made this all come to fruition. And it's really infuriating. It is infuriating. But before we make any final judgments, the trial has not occurred, right? So normally it's rare that we do one of these, but I do think it's so, these sorts of stories are so pertinent and important, right? Maybe there's something we'll learn in the trial that will explain some of this. And obviously, you know, all parties are presumed innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. The defense will probably come up with some strategy, but like there's little doubt as to who did this. So it's going to be kind of a cut and dry case, right? And this trial is actually slated to begin in May in 2024. So we will come back with updates if significant ones do occur. And among the many people who want to see justice done in this case is, of course, Janicia, Jordan's mother, who has told reporters that she wants Quay to go to jail for the rest of his life. This whole entire thing is on him. They ain't got no other suspects. He's not being framed or nothing. When the kid passed away, he was still in his father's care. That's what messes me about this whole situation. It's just, you know, how do you do this to your son? People have their own selfish reason why I did. And the only question I have for him is this. Why? If you didn't want to be in that kid's life, you should have said, hey, you know what? I don't want nothing to do with him. It is what it is. What can I find my rights away? And you find your rights away and you go about your life. And then you have to deal with that morality or that situation. You have to deal with that on your own conscience. But he, whatever he did, he had absolutely no right to violate that young man's life like that. I don't know the mother. I would like to talk to her, you know, to see if there's anything I can do for her. It's not about Quay. It's about this boy. It's about this young man named Jordan. That's who it's about. I want the focus to be on this little boy who, who won't get to have an ice cream cone during the summer times. Not to play his first video game, not to enjoy an NBA game or a wrestling event or kick a soccer ball or shoot a basket or throw a football or run in for a touchdown or enjoy driving a car or, like, learn how to drive a manual. It's just the fun stuff that people get into. So as horrific and incomprehensible as all this is, wanting to get to the bottom of why Quay did this and what explanation could possibly be offered by the defense in court, you know, it's a question worth posing, right? So we know straight out the gate that if he's convicted, his age will be taken into account. He's 19. We always talk about your brain not being fully developed till 26. There's something to that, right? And the defense may also make the argument that his behavior is largely a result of a poor yet pervasive peer influences that he experienced, especially if Quay has been pretty much disengaged from his family. They're going to point to the systemic variables that brought him here. Right. And there is so much more that we could say on this. And we in no way want to oversimplify something so complex or excuse what Quay has done, especially as it pertains to marginalized groups who have to deal with the significant impact of intergenerational trauma on top of everything else that we've discussed when it comes to looking at the precursors to violence. Right. You know, and this is a topic that is so vast. Like Jack said, it's like we don't want to oversimplify it, but you can't ignore it. You just can't. No, absolutely not. 
So in the meantime, both sides of Jordan's heartbroken family struggle to get through their days, knowing their world will never be the same. You know, Jordan was taken too soon. That's a relationship none of them will ever get to have. And Quay now is taken in a different way. And that's that's crushing for everyone involved. And the additional stigma attached to an offender's family is also something painful for all of them, right? Especially for Lone Wolf, knowing that someone he loves has been accused of doing something so awful. They got him on second-degree murder charges. That means that it's a possibility he can have a life outside of this. Like, he can maybe do 40 years, 30 years, 50 years. Like, he can come out and try to reclaim his life later on down the road. So there is an opportunity for that. I still do love him. This just doesn't change me. Love him is just, I don't know where he snapped and how this all happened, but... uh at this point, emotionally, I'm over the situation, to be honest with you. I still got kids to raise in my life I'm living, and I don't have no room for the negativity. I love him. I will always love him. I wish him well. I'm here for him in spirit. It, it sucks to say that, but you, well, what can you do? The thing about the Black community is that we're all born and raised to not be weak. And so... As a kid, I was going through depression situations and I had mental health issues. And what I was told is black people don't have mental health issues. And that's the issue with my nephew. Apparently, you know, murdering somebody is a mental health issue and taking it as far as they do is a really big problem. I feel that if we educate ourselves in the black community, we can stop these things happening, which is a lot of things that happen in black communities based off of us being told that we're not this and we're not that and basing everything off of um, the past. It's just really mind-boggling. The reason this happened was mental health issues. And because he may have been depressed or going through what he was going through or having a moment, it happened. But if he was well-educated in that, which we're not educating the Black community because me growing up, and others was told that being having mental health or having behavior issues is a white thing, not a black thing. Mental health is not a real thing when I know what mental health and what depression feels like. We got to be more educated and more uh, receptive of things that can happen. Uh, it's not a color thing. It's just the way you're built, the way we're programmed. And unfortunately, what he did... Um, this is a tragedy, and we just want to make sure that at the end of the day, people are being educated on these things. So if you are having thoughts of um, hurting people or thoughts of suicides, hurting yourself, that you have people to talk to, uh, I don't think it's pushed enough. So again, um, thank you for allowing me to be a part of the podcast, um, uh, being a firstie. Um, I appreciate you ladies. You're doing an amazing job. Keep up the good work. What happened to Jordan was so senseless and gut-wrenching. It's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to fathom. And trying to make sense of all this, we can't look at this case without considering all the circumstances that brought Quay, who again is very young, to where he is now. Because none of us live in a social vacuum. Quay was young to be a father and brain wasn't developed, which means his impulse control and decision-making skills weren't refined and weren't similar or comparable to those of someone older, wiser and more mature, 
with some life lessons under their belt. At the end of the day, Quay is responsible for his own actions and choices. But two things can be true at the same time. And we have to acknowledge that the complex and nuanced interplay of external societal and familial factors that had a profound impact on Quay's life were not in his favor. Well, a huge thank you to Lone Wolf for being our first degree for this episode. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello the first degree podcast.com. Again, we're looking for true con stories as well as true crime. So please email us if you have anything. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Please join our Patreon if you want any bonus content and stick around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. That's right. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Good old Gemma, thank you. Sources for this episode are Court Records, Fox 12, Oregon, KATU2, Oregon Live, KGW8, KPTV, Como News, Coin 6 News, Oregon Department of Justice, NBC 16, the National Library of Medicine, the CDC, the National Gang Center, and the U.S. Department of Justice. And as always, Lone Wolf today, our first degree guest, is our largest source. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 